Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today's guest is Chris Kirsten, co-CEO of the Land to Market program. And to me, uh, something I guess I, I've always thought is that helping regenerative farmers acquire a premium price for the premium products that we're raising is going to be a pretty darn important way to uh, uh, accelerate the adoption of regenerative practices across our landscapes. And we need people to help a lot of us farmers who aren't maybe the best at marketing our products and marketing the work that we do. And so I'm excited to talk to Chris today and hear about the work that he and his team are doing with the Land to Market program that'll hopefully be able to help farmers in that journey. So thanks so much, Chris, and welcome to the Herd Quitter podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jared. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So uh, I kind of mentioned to you off the call, I'm excited to dig into the the Land to Market stuff, but I always love to just kind of build some context for the listener about who you are, who the guest is. And, and um, yeah, so if you wouldn't mind, uh, sharing a little bit about your history, how you got into doing what you're doing today with with Land of Market. I'd, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a long story, as everyone's life is. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. I'll try to give you the abridged version. You guide me if you want more. Um, but uh, did not grow up in in ranching and farming or agriculture as a whole. A um, uh, couple generations removed, and then and then like five generations removed from the the first non Spanish cattle brought to California were actually brought by the the Crow family. And I'm, I'm a descendant of the Crow family, but mm-hmm. grew up a suburb kid outside of Los Angeles. Um, and, and pretty typical suburb life. Uh, didn't know where my food came from, grew up in the nineties. You know, that was kind of my jam. Um, in that, that era where people didn't talk about that stuff, didn't really think about it. It was real fringe at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, in high school, I was, I was dating a woman and, um, she, her family had a small ranch and I just was spending time with them. And, and just like, it was like, it's such a calling. I was like falling in love with all this like yeah. outdoor activity. I'd been a pretty inside TV video game kid. And it was just like, it literally just like turned 180 degrees, the direction mm-hmm. of my life in a, in a pretty short amount of time. Um, and there was just something deep and in, in like in my soul that just like called out to this like, humans have been following these animals and these animals have been following humans for, for longer than any of us know, or, or can really probably fathom. Um, and so I had this like a, like epiphany moment from that. And she came back from a, from a, a, a cattle event from a show, uh, and had bought a heifer. <laughs> how old I am. It was 600 bucks. And she only had $300. And she said, do you want to go into cattle business and, and, and buy a cow with me? And I did. And, and that was the the first animal that I had had ownership in and, and started building my own herd from then. Mm-hmm. Um, I went on to, I kind of abandoned my, my, my parents had all these opportunities in, in business. And uh, I had a whole plan for college and I changed all of that. I started working as a ranch hand. Uh, my parents were freaking out. I was going to say, <laughs> I wonder what they felt about that. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. There was an accelerator program for managers, kids at my mom's work, which she worked for a big Fortune 500 telecom company. 
Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. like, no, mom, I'm turning that deal down and I'm going to be a farmer. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it just like blew their mind. Yeah. Like, oh my it. God. You're throwing yeah. your life away. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh. And, uh, and that's what I did. I, 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 I did a little bit of everything in the early days. I was, was pretty conventional. I used to read the Western livestock journal cover to cover, yeah. you know, every Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever it was that I got it. You know, I could tell you what futures were trading for. I could tell mm-hmm. you corn prices. Um, I, I just said yes to everything. I was a, I was a full-time ranch hand on like a, I don't know, I think we had like a thousand acres and like 70 mama cows mm-hmm. um, on a ranch uh, in Auburn. I'm in the Northern California foothills and, and still sure. live in that band of foothills today. I'm, I'm much further North now outside of Chico. Um, but yeah, I, I, I got into that. I got into to Lassiter and the Lassiter philosophy of cattle raising. And, and that was amazing um, and has really guided my life. Uh, I started working for the extension agent. Uh, I started working for a fencing contractor. So I was visiting a lot of farms and ranches and seeing what was working and wasn't. I got on my local cattleman's board. I was the youngest member on the cattleman's board. Mm. Um, I switched my major to ag. I was taking all all um, ag classes at the community college and then later at the university. Um, I went head over heels for it. I went mm-hmm. and had my own and kept you know having my own herd and all that. I was doing. I was doing embryo transfers and AIs and 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 getting trained as a tech and all those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was working with the University of California at their research ranch um, up in the foothills, the Sierra Foothills Research Extension Center, uh, training you know future vet students that were just going to work on small animal how to how to rope and brand and, and castrate and um, and all those things. Um, and and you know never really felt 100 like part of the club but was doing everything i could you know saying sure. yes to everything i could to learn as fast as i could um and then for me the big light bulb moment was was it was actually joel salatin prior to alan savory um but i i happened to come across joel salatin's book in a library a public library it was you can farm and it was all these notions of direct to consumer how to farm differently how to get premiums how to farm farm more in nature's image and be a better steward of the land uh and all of that really resonated with me sometimes i'll i'll say it's like kind of like angel song as i like picked it up and like light shone upon it you know it was yeah, like sure. uh that really changed my life and i just I, I ravaged that book i read through the whole book in like a day and a half two days something like that um and luckily enough through the extension agency joel came through our town um and and my boss was pretty progressive at the extension agency he was doing a lot in the early days of grass-fed and direct marketing uh, old time guy, Roger Ingram. And, uh, and I got to meet Joel and, uh, you know, was talking to him a little bit. He signed my books and it's like, okay, cool. This is before Omnivore Dilemma or Food Inc or any of the things that really launched him into like the public sphere. He was still really only talking to ranchers at that time. And so, okay, that was kind of cool. Um, and then I got to meet him again and a couple more times we ran into each other and he came to a little bit of a mentor of mine. And, and pretty early on, he said, um, he said, you really need to know more about this Alan Savory guy. Uh, and Alan had been on my radar, but I hadn't really dug deep into it. I didn't understand what holistic management was yet. I knew a little bit of like, you know, some organizations that were doing work, but I just thought, okay, you know, it's just, you know, good grazing. I didn't really get it. I didn't really know what it was. And so, so it was Joel that was like, this is, this is something you got to dig into. And so I got his book. I started learning about it. Um, and that, that was another whole change my life again, because it was like, oh, look at all the flexibility here of holistic management that, that you're defining the context of your life, where you want to go, what you want to do, 
what your big dreams are, what resources you have to get there, and kind of acknowledging all that out the gate, and then still using nature as a model. It depoliticized a lot of it, um, and and that was that was um, it was just it was just a big turning point in my life, and so. I actually got booked by the Sabre Institute to give a talk not too long after that. And then um, the ranch that I had been running for a while, there had been some like rumblings in the family trust and just things kind of started to get shaky. And and it was it was my time to leave. And so uh, I called the Sabre Institute. It was like, hey, you know, they knew who we were. We'd been chatting to them a little bit about ways to collaborate. It's like, hey, you know, would love to understand how to get closer to you guys and what you guys are doing. And they were like, we're hiring. Um, and I didn't realize how new the Savory Institute as an organization was that Alan's had multiple organizations that he's helped get going over the years. Um, and this was the one that was designed to really take it global, uh, and, and really create perennial presences around the world with resources that are, that are based in that region that know the socioeconomic political context of those areas better. Um, and so after the founders, I was the first outside hire. Uh, and it was like, you know, a year after the founding and they were, they were literally at their first week in their offices when I went to interview. Um, so I joined the Savory Institute, um, and have been there for 10 years now. And so, um, have helped get all the different iterations of helped get the hub network going. I ran our conferences for a long time and marketing and communications, um, and then, and then got into, um, land to market and the development of EOV. And and there was I don't know there's about a ten year window in there where I, I direct marketed me, uh, okay. and that was my kind of sole gig of of um, working on that last farm that had the issues with the family trust that it was just you know it was just a good time to step away, but there was about ten years in there of focusing on direct to consumer. We went to like eight farmers markets in a week. I was on a couple of farmers markets boards. We were doing buying clubs and every delivery scheme you could think of. Uh, we did meat CSAs and fruit CSAs. Um, we had people come out direct to the farm. We did farm tours. We had uh, houses for agritourism. We helped the state of California write their agritourism code. We did school campouts. Um, you know, you name it. And uh, and so that was that was kind of steeped in that direct to consumer piece, and sure. spent a lot of time um, kind of coalescing community and and mm. uh, connecting with consumers on shared values. So that. That empowering consumers and empowering farmers at the same time and connecting them over shared values and synergies has, has been the through line of my whole career. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'll, you don't need the whole New Yorker article. I'll, I'll shut up and stop there. No, that's well, that's, that's <laughs> like a wealth of experience. Obviously, you've done a lot of things and, and having built, I'm glad that you mentioned there, there at the end that you had this experience building a market because you recognize the challenges probably then that farmers face when we're producers and trying to build some sort of a market. So I, I want to get into that, but I'm curious, was there a shift or why, why did you choose to go into more of the uh, industry side? I don't know if you call it industry or ag nonprofit versus staying in the production side of agriculture when that opportunity came up. You know, it's so funny. I was talking to somebody about this the other day, like when you're when you're young, you think you have the world is your oyster and you have all these options forever. And then it's like, you know, well, what you've been doing kind of dictates what you're going to do in the future that you have all this momentum on this thing. Yeah. And um, that was a, that was a pretty hard shift for me. And I look back and and probably didn't give it the gravitas that it, it deserved to really, really it was like, oh, I'll just go try this other thing for a while now. And you sure. know, here I am 10 years later. And and it's been 
one like like simultaneously one of the most fulfilling decisions I've ever made, and and also one of the hardest because. My love, I, I actually did, a, we had a lot of documentary films out of that farm. And mm -hmm. what I did right towards the end, I say in the documentary, I would never do anything else. Uh, and here I am now working on like global scale issues and working on a meta level. Um, and I'm not actively farming as much anymore. Like we, we, you know, keep geese and goats and chickens and, you know, have a small homestead and, and, we're about to expand that. I just picked up, I've got 60 acres of burned land. That's a whole other story that sure. went through the fires here in California. Um, but I'm not actively farming anymore. And um, to leave that behind was a challenge, but um, there's something really fulfilling about getting to travel the world and see people all around the world face the same issues. It's all weather and government and taxes and markets. You know, it's just sure. it's different mixes of the same thing. And sometimes I think, you know, and I and I and I came from this flavor of like, you know, American pride, especially around like grass fed and like don't don't come in on our territory. And and like getting to see the rest of the world, it's like, oh my goodness, like there's no free lunch here. Like nobody really has it better than we do. Um, and is getting rich in the process and screwing us out. And and there's something about, you know, I, I sometimes I talk about this notion of like being an archipelago. Like I I felt like an island for so long in my community. And being a part of this global movement, it's a little bit like coming home and it feels like, oh, mm. it's this string of islands. Like, like yeah. you know, whether you're a Luddite or a, a technocrat, like, the notion of this more digital world and this more remote world is that we can connect with people in the same tribe all around the world. And that has just been amazing. I wouldn't trade those experiences for anything, mm -hmm. not to mention like Alan Savory is one of my heroes. And, and like right after I start, he had just done the Ted talk like two or three months earlier. Yeah, and so sure. I went on tour with him for like three years and <laughs> like literally just like carried his bag and like went place to place to place. And, um, you know, he gives, if you, if you know Alan, I'm familiar with his work, he gives a really high level talk. And then I, I was kind of realizing like, ah, oh, we're not really landing it for the local community. Like, mm -hmm. what do they do next? And so I started becoming his closer. And so I, I got the opportunity to do a lot of public speaking, a lot of thought leadership and kind of being the closer of like, okay, now here's what you can do next. Uh, sure. Here's how you operationalize that in your community. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's the context I'm coming from. Uh, that's, yeah. that's been my background and in, in the space I've been operating well, that's interesting it, 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 that specifically what you mentioned there. I don't know if you listened to the episode I did with Alan Savory and, and somebody kind of called me out on it too. And they were right to when I was talking with him, I kept, he talks at a level so much beyond where I think on a regular basis, for sure. He pushes you out of your comfort zone and comfort levels. And I kept like almost trying to bring him down to like the, how do I apply this to me level, which just wasn't what he wanted to maybe talk about. You're not getting this. Yeah. And Many so, have tried. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because it makes me maybe feel like I, I uh, well, I, um, I'm not alone and there's a lot of people that maybe are not at his level. And I know that's the case, but also I should have uh, continued to engage in where he was going because yeah, it was phenomenal. He's definitely a deeper thinker than most. It's it's what I would equate to probably would have been like talking to Einstein. Like he, his yeah. just <laughs> observational powers are just literally unparalleled by the common yeah. person. Um, and so he makes these giant leaps that you're just constantly like pulling them back down. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, like I'm a third grader. Let's yes. how do we make 
exactly it's it's a process to get him there uh yeah but but it's because because he's cruising along at at forty thousand feet and and, you know the rest of us are playing catch-up so yeah well i might have to have you come on another time in the future just to talk like talk about what you said kind of what you did was be a closer for him and bring everything down to ground level for the rest of us uh uh, who are not up there and at his level but uh, but today I, I do want to talk about this land to market program. I, I and, and so maybe I'll just turn it over to you to explain what it is. Um, how long has it been around? What's the goals of this this project? Yeah, through through Alan's legacy, you know, we've estimated that we've probably impact from a legacy. So this is like 2010, 2010 and earlier, something like 50, 60 million hectares of land have been influenced through training via accredited people that have been trained by him or via his uh, curriculum. Um, and so that's a lot. That's a lot. So as we're starting to set up these hubs around the world, that 2010 onward was when the hub strategy came in. It's like, okay, so we're going to set up these perennial presences. They're very entrepreneurial. They're about coalescing a movement. And then you 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 engage with these accredited educators. Uh, and now later monitors will come into the picture. But accredited educators that can take the work of holistic management and contextualize it even further to that region um, and, and be the starting point that is that perennial presence that meets the ranchers and farmers where they are in their own culture, their own people. And so as we're building that out, all of a sudden brands are coming to us because we're really getting this tipping point. You know, in the early days, it was kind of beyond organic was kind of the best people. It's like something better than the only thing that that differentiates food in the marketplace is like there's something more happening here and that was kind of the the era i came out of and so we we started having brands coming in us being like okay how do we source from that how does this become a sourcing solution we're like we don't know like that that involves a bunch of logistics and and all Mm -hmm. we've done is gone and train them and taught them principles of this is principles of nature this is principles of human psychology this is principles of planning it's up to them to keep up with it. You know, it's, it's a little bit like being a fitness coach, you know, it's like, it's, it's yeah. up to you to do the work. We can help guide you along the way. And it, it just didn't stop. It was incessant. Like the brands just kept coming. And, and some of the world's biggest brands and retailers were knocking on our door. What do we do with this? And so we started thinking about it. And sometimes I think some of the, the best things that happen in, in the world are, you know, we sometimes call them big, hairy, audacious goals or, mm-hmm. or just like naivety of, of like really what an undertaking you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and so we all came out of the farming space, you know, all the early players at Savory were all, were all former agrarians. And we said, you know, we're kind of sick of certifications they stand today. Like what if we flipped that on its head? What if we measured the outcomes of what happened on the land and, and really helped get the target off livestock's back? Because that's, that's where we were starting from is, the zeitgeist is pretty dogmatic. You know, the general message in the news is all livestock are bad all the time. And yeah. so we know there's a critical mass of people doing it right. Is it 100%? No. Is there a bad livestock industry out there? Sure. Is it as bad as people say? I probably might still argue that. Um, but but yeah, there there is a bad livestock industry out there. How can we show that there's a critical mass of people stewarding and doing things right? We said, what if we measured the outcomes? And what if we did that with empirical data? In fact, that's probably what we have to show up with is something really bomb proof that it's like, no, this isn't anecdotal. This isn't a photo. This isn't a north facing slope versus a south facing slope. Um, this is this is like real data collected the same way everywhere year after year. And so we wanted to measure an aggregate of ecosystem health. We, we saw 
everyone going down these silos and, and they feel really reductionist and there's all sorts of unintended consequences from going down these silos of looking at carbon by itself, looking at soil health by itself, looking at water by itself, looking at biodiversity by itself. And it's like, they're all windows into the same room. They're, they're all things that are, that are playing off of each other that, that play to some degree in a linear fashion, or at least uh, in a coalesced fashion. And so um, we said, what if, what if we measured a whole aggregate of the ecosystem? What if we were looking at the whole thing and we're unapologetic about that? Uh, and that was the launch of our protocol of ecological outcome verification. Uh, and this is where the naive part came in because it was like, okay, we've already taught ranchers how to look at leading indicators of, of land health. Um, and it took going from that standpoint of, we can already teach ranchers how to, how to read their land, how to speak land, if you will. Um, we've already taught them that process. There's already existing curriculum. To go from that to a standardized global program was six years just to get it out of pilot mode and really be able to measure the same metrics everywhere and normalize for what's expected in that given ecoregion. Um, so that you really can start to look at a property in Nevada and compare it to a property in Vermont because you've normalized for weather and outside ecological factors. Sure. Um, and so, so that took six years and that's a constant refinement process. That's still happening today, seven, eight, 10 years down the road depending mm -hmm. on when you start counting where this journey started. Um, so that was the first part. That was just getting yeah. a way to measure. Then we had to build a, a you know a cadre of, of monitors and build curriculum to train people on how to measure this. And we really believe real world metrics are what we can show up to the world with to get that target off livestock's back. You need people calibrated and trained and trained well. You need a platform to store data to be able to do anything with that, that information and utilize it effectively. Uh, so then that was kind of phase two. And again, that's still iterating, but we had to get to a critical mass of that to where that could work. And now we have you know hundreds of monitors and hub verifiers and global quality assurance all set up to collect this data and make sure it's as clean and robust as it possibly can be for the world. Um, and so, so in the last five, six years, we've now done that monitoring process with accredited monitors and verifiers and, and global quality assurance on just over 4 million acres. And so it's nowhere near the, the, the 50 million acres of legacy and the 10 million acres, um, the 10 million hectares of land that's been influenced by Sabre Institute since then. Um, but it is growing exponentially, like, mm -hmm. like as fast as we can onboard those resources and upgrade those systems and infrastructure is as fast as we're putting new, new land bases yeah. into the system every day. So then that brings us back to, okay, it's time to talk to the brands again. And, and some of them stayed along the ride and said, okay, we called them our angel philanthropists. And it was like, all right, we're, we're going to, we're going to fund this, not really knowing what's coming out the other end. Uh, yeah. And our biggest funder in that was Epic Provisions, uh, mm -hmm. the, the meat bar company that eventually got bought by General Mill. Um, but, but they were, the, they were the biggest, the loudest, the most vocal. And there was some foundations behind the scene. And then, um, Caring Group was an early player too, which owns Gucci and Balenciaga and a bunch of luxury brands in in um, in Europe. Um, and so, so that was the start of it. And so now we've got this critical mass of data. We're we're collecting information, and so now it comes to let's go start opening the barn doors and and open this up to a wider array of brands. And mm -hmm. uh, and so so now I shift from you know whatever we're on here now. I started in 2012, I think. Um, that a lot of my work had been getting hubs equipped and then getting the EOV process up and going and doing conferences and events and, and thought leadership 
it was a lot of ag type stuff. And now I'm shifting and I'm showing up to C-suites uh, and headquarters and, and boardrooms for brands all around the world. And so for for three years, I, I averaged 70 flights a year. And I was just going to, to anyone who would listen. And I'm just showing up to boardrooms and it's like, why is this important to you? And this is kind of ongoing for our team today of like really understanding better than anyone else why do brands care about their environmental impact in a capitalist world? Who do they think is going to hold them accountable and who's currently holding them accountable um, is a question that we're, we're constantly asking ourselves to refine. But that was the start of it. It was just a lot of listening. Like, here's what we have. We think it could be something. What is it you need? And we hit a moment in history where the world was just ready for something. I think it's Victor Hugo as a quote. There's, there's nothing as, as powerful as an idea whose time has come. Um, and that's what the last three or four years has felt like, like just yeah. things way outside of our control, you know, tipping points are happening all over the place and it's just turning on and all of a sudden everybody's like, no, no, we care about sourcing. We care about traceability. We care about knowing the farmer. One, one of the big ones for that was caring group <clears throat> did this thing called environmental profit and loss it was based on this idea that what if they had to pay for all the externalities that happened along their supply chain? What if they had to pay to clean them up? And what if they made decisions that way of where, how they sourced and, and performed their business all along the value chain, even when they have no agency, no control? Most brands buy one step back to pretty finished goods and then put their secret sauce on it. And, sure. and we're talking all the way back to first stage processing, second stage processing, growing, farming, logistics, everything in between. And so they don't have a ton of control over those things, but they're realizing that's where most of the impact happens. And so what can we do about it? And so they did this, this uh, analysis of where most of the negative impact of society happens. And most of it happened at the very beginning of the chain. It happened from land use. It happened from uh, you know, poor management on, on farms. It happened from first stage processing. And they're sitting there looking, going, we've been telling the world a story about better light bulbs and better packaging and, and electric vehicles. And most of our impacts happen at the other end. And we don't know anything about land. So we got to start investing and learning in that. And so we formed a partnership with them. And we said, there's a whole world of people that are doing this right, that don't get any of the spotlight, any of the story. Uh, we can help you find them and we can bring data to back it up. Um, and so that's that's when we started really kind of unlocking things with, with brands. And after they put out that environmental profit loss report and showed most of their impact was happening in tier four, brands all over the world started paying attention and just from there on, it's just been like drinking from the fire hose. You just can't keep up with the demand. Um, and we go into brands, and, and I'll pause after this, but but we go into brands and we say, this is hard. This, there's nothing about this is easy. We're, we're in the business of change in the way that you do things. Um, and that requires getting to know the farmers, having transparency along the supply chain. This isn't how do I put in the lease and get the most out of it. This is this is true paradigm shift, and and we only want to work with partners that are true change makers, that are true market makers, that know how to shift an industry, know what it's like to take the bumps along the road and take all the arrows for being first. Um, but they pick up the market share on the other side, um, and they build a, a brand image based on that. And so, so those are the the brands we say yes to uh, is the ones that we see that in their um, uh, in their ethos and in their drive. So there's a lot there and a million questions that I have, but I was really intrigued there. And you've kind of addressed it a little bit since when you talked about when you're going in, you're trying to convince them the value of this in the capitalist in, uh, economy where 
they don't, they're not paying for those externalities, those things currently. Why, if in, in an economy where they're not paying for it, what is it that's actually triggering them to, to think that this is worth investing in? Or is it just the companies that already have that as kind of part of their, their brand culture, I guess you could say that those are just, you don't have to do the convincing. Uh, Every brand's going to have their own DNA of that, but I can, I can give some of the core tenants and some of the highlights that we've learned along the way. Um, coming from the food space, I expected it to be consumers. We were the ones driving it, you know, that it was, it was, you know, shared values. That's true for the smaller companies, you know, your Epic provisions, your serenity, baby foods, your force of nature, your thousand Hills, you know, those are the ones that are selling to the dark green consumer already gets it. And that, that choir, you know, you're preaching to the choir, that choir is getting bigger all the time. Um, the big companies, that's, that's not really their aim. If that happens Mm -hmm. to be an after effect, great. Um, most of the big companies, I'm pretty shocked how often I, I show up into, you know, a fortune 500 boardroom. Um, and that's the other thing. I mean, a moment in time, why is a guy like me getting to walk into a boardroom or a C-suite, you know, this is a whole new world that no one ever told them they even need to know about. And so it's open doors for us that, that moment in time that really, wouldn't have been open for us at any other moment in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I joke it was this whole movement has felt a little bit like pushing a boulder up a hill for 20, 30, 50 years, depending on when you started, and now chasing down after it the other side. It, it's still a marathon, but it's a very different kind of race. And we've seen that tipping point happen in the last couple of years. But I'm shocked when I go into these boardrooms how often they're just very candid. It's like we have a highly extractive business model that will not exist 50 years from now. Like we just know that. Mm-hmm. And to see, you know, you tend to think about like CEOs, president, politics, whatever you, we tend to think of these people having magic wands and, and, and be able to change things and how often they know that and are still very powerless to the larger machine of what they have built is of how, would, even if we had the solution, how would we implement it at scale for who and what we are? And so, you know, Sometimes that lives in innovation projects and we have to take that innovation project, figure out how to make it scalable across the entire business. But it's shocking how much they, they're just fully candid. Like if we don't change, we're going to be dinosaurs. Like we're not going to be here 10, 20, 30 years, whatever the number is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that sometimes it's the personal that they just know that. Um, sometimes, like I said, the smaller brands, it's the consumer. Shockingly, it is often the investors. The investors are putting two and two together better than anybody because they're seeing volatility in the world. They're seeing volatility, you know, I don't care where you stand on the climate thing, but they're seeing volatility that's weather related and going, how do we get more resilient on that front? Um, And that means making supply chains more resilient. Well, boom, COVID hits and now supply chains are more brittle than ever. Uh, Nobody has a network. Everybody's got single points of control that are now blocked and screwed up. Uh, and product is sitting still all over the world. And they're going, wait a minute, we have to get transparency and traceability across our supply chains. We have to build a network of suppliers and we got to go all the way back to where we have relationships with the raw material growers, i.e. the farmers. Um, and so you add what was already kind of happening of the world seeing you know, climate events happen, uh, investors really looking for resiliency to try to move past volatility that was showing up in their portfolios, COVID, and it's just a perfect storm of everybody's like, okay, this is what matters. And now the general zeitgeist of, of population is is really it's going mainstream. I don't know the, 
the word regenerative, I think, is going to go mainstream. I think full transparency, we're not there yet. You got to be moderately fringe to know what regenerative means. Um, in fact, there was a there was a recent survey that was done by more conventional meat, but they they did some consumer insights and consumers said when you say regenerative meat, they thought it meant lab grown, that it sounded like a nerdy word in front yeah. of meat, and that probably meant bad. And so I don't think I don't think regenerative is mainstream yet, but consumers caring about the environment, caring about where products come from, themselves wanting to get more resilient to the the changes they see in the world, both economic and weather related, is is a driver for this. And so I think that consumer piece is coming around, is changing, and that's just creating a bigger onslaught of demand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, there's there is. I, I suppose. I mean these companies too, they probably want to be the first ones. You mentioned the market share opportunity. There's more and more people demanding products raised in this way that meets these goals that the consumers have, and they want to be the ones that take advantage of it. They, they see the profit, I'm sure, in it too. And so there's there's a incentive, financial incentive for them, which there should be if they're going to take the risk, especially on these early stages, like you talked about, the, the work that goes into building a supply chain for something like this is... I, I can't even imagine. I, I'm blown away by the logistics of some of these companies and how they make things work. But um, and, and this is where that true cost accounting thing, I think, is so interesting that if a company had to pay for their externalities across the supply chain, they're kind of looking at that at that potential opportunity cost, which is all negative. If we had to pay this huge cleanup fee, this little bit of added cost is at the front end, as, as it's like preventative med- medicine. It's like, it's like, oh, that actually is cheaper in the long run. So the big companies are less interested in this has to all of a sudden increase margins. They're pretty interested in increasing market share, but but margin isn't always the first one. The smaller companies that are just getting started, that are, that are really the least risk averse and the most nimble and really taking it to that dark green consumer, you know, they're eating it on all ends. You look at some of these small mission-driven companies and it's like, there's there's no one that segregates that product. You have to build that from the ground up. Like like the rancher needs to get paid more to acknowledge what they've done. Uh, the retailers have to understand it, so they're putting a bunch of energy and time into education campaigns, and the customer needs to understand it, and so they're putting a bunch of time and energy into education campaigns there, and so their costs go up in every direction. And but they're the ones that are really driving the most change. The big companies are without a doubt chasing the small innovative brands. And and they're the ones that are getting squeezed on both sides, which is which is a total bummer and something that we're trying to change every day. Yeah, and it seems like more and more often now too, some of these big companies, rather than doing the work themselves, are letting these other smaller innovators go out and create the brands, and they're kind of buying them. I mean, you mentioned Epic Provisions. I think Pasture Bird was recently kind of taken over, which I'm. It is what it is, uh, but it, it's interesting that that's kind of the route that they've gone, whether, I don't know, hopefully those folks that have done the work are being rewarded and compensated fairly for it, I guess, but it, it kind of makes it easier, I suppose, than doing it themselves and trying to shift a massive you know, ship. They can let these small, nimble companies build something out that then they can work into. Yeah. It, se- it seems like you go through ebbs and flows, these like 10-year cycles, as I'm, as I'm learning more and more about this space of like, no acquisitions really happen. And then acquisitions happen, and and when they acquire, they disband, and so they they run the company through the chop shop. They pull out, sure. pull apart all the assets to to really disband that threat of market share. Um, and then you go through these phases where it's like, oh, actually, we'll we'll buy that brand as an innovation brand, and somehow osmotically, it's going to change the parent company. And then 
if and when it gets to where in the trend that's not really happening, that osmotic change isn't happening, it starts the cycle over. Sure. Um, so it seems like since the since the late seventies, early eighties, there have been a couple of cycles that look mm-hmm. like this, and we are in right one right now that is like, oh no, we're going to buy all the innovation brands, even if they're not profitable, to learn everything that we can from them and change the way we do business. And so, I think we are seeing. I'll just be super candid. We're seeing changes in parent companies I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. I mean, honestly, there is more happening behind the scenes than the customers were ever even told about. That is just fantastic. I mean, just, it doesn't mean I'm going in like, you know, without, without uh, skepticism, but uh, you know, I'm the guy who turned down the corporate job at, at, you know, 18 years old. I'm I'm not really my, my cup of tea, but um but I, I am frequently surprised of what's happening inside of these companies. Can they do more? Yes. Do they need to do more? Yeah. How, how this data all gets accounted for to the world, that's going to be where the rubber hits the road. We've got to continue to influence that conversation, that it isn't a single variable like carbon. It isn't a single variable like water. And that all of these are interrelated. And looking at the whole ecosystem is really critical to giving yeah. a robust uh, metric of accounting of, of what's actually happening in the real world. Yeah, yeah. And so, like you mentioned, a lot of these costs are, you know, the the externality costs or whatever are being accumulated at the early in the production stages. And these companies by offering this, or by selling these products are probably getting a premium. Is the premium trickling down to the place, to the farmers who are, who are actually paying these externalities by, or who are actually in, incurring the costs to make the changes in their production system? I guess, does that make sense? Or are the farmers being compensated for the work to do this transition to provide a product that then, you know, these companies will be able to sell at a premium, I guess? It's a $100 billion question. And so, <laughs> um, and, and quite literally might be, be in that range. Um, so, yeah, I start with is the company selling it for a premium? And, and sometimes yes, sometimes no. Is there a history of, of premiums at point of sale trickling back to raw material? No. Uh, there's, a, there's a divide there that it's like innovation happens after raw material uh, and any premium acquired you know, for blue sky branding, product performance. Um, there's just, there's really no history of that from my research of that in any way, linearly or non-linearly trickling back down. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we sometimes mix up retail premiums with commodity premiums, and that's where we get ourselves into trouble. Uh, we're really trying to design something that goes, that can really jump the stepping stone past premium as the only tool in the toolbox. You know, it's kind of like, remember when we were living in a world that organic was the only differentiator? I think mm-hmm. we're living in a world right now where the only tool in the toolbox everybody thinks about is, is premium. Um, premium, in my mind, has some faults because in a commodity system, so so anytime your program is scale, we're going to start to think about that in commodity terms. So think, yes. of, um, think of organic milk. Organic milk requires totally different production. To create, right? You got to do all sorts of things differently from a production standpoint. But as soon as you have scale, there's now a chart of this is available from 10,000 producers. And so it immediately starts to follow commodity archetype. Even though it's differentiated from a commodity floor, Mm -hmm. all those same patterns in supply and demand start to show up um, because you have a program at scale. And so as you bring more producers into that program, 
you are going to create that inverse curve of all of a sudden, um, at some point you cross the theoretical threshold of can the premium as we scale and that premium declines with, with the nature of scale, cover mm -hmm. the cost of production change in the audit? And what happens when it crosses that threshold? You could make the argument that organic milk did that at about 2% market share. That didn't take very long to scale before all of a sudden that premium that we were all excited about didn't cover the cost of production change and yeah. the audit. Um, and so if we want this to be a worldwide movement, is a premium the best tool for that at the commodity level where buying raw material? Now, when you're selling direct to the consumer, you get to be both. You get to be the retail and you get to be the raw material producer all in one vertical integration. So the rules are a little bit different there. But if you're trying to sell live animals to anybody downstream, premium long-term may not be your best friend. And so I'll tell you, I'll tell you just jump into the punchline where I, where I think we're going. I think we're headed towards a world where the, the, the general population is starting to have this awakening that the soil and how we manage the soil is the unlock to so many of our problems, whether that's climate change, water insecurity, food shortages, struggling rural economies. We're seeing the world go, oh, wait a minute, how we manage the soil is the lowest common denominator for how we manage land. Most of that land is privately held. And this is the part that we're, we're I think we're just about to see this light bulb come on. It's like, oh, well, if it's privately held, that means the agrarian is the ambassador to that solution. And for all of human history, we relegated them to the peasant class. How do we fix that? If they truly can play a strong role in solving those problems, that has huge value to, to the private sector and to governments. I think we have to start paying farmers for ecosystem services. That's a fancy word for clean air and clean water, uh, healthy, robust ecosystems and biodiversity. Um, and so that's where I think we are headed. Uh, I see signs of that from, from big governments like the US and EU, but I see stronger movement happening in smaller agrarian, stable smaller agrarian governments, New Zealand, Uruguay, uh, Ireland, UK, um, places that are smaller, it's a little bit easier to tackle some pilots. And I think we're going to see some test and learns happen there first that then will emerge into places like the US and the EU. So that's where I think the long-term game is. And, and I, I believe in a future world where farmers are paid like doctors and lawyers and should be, should be 100% unapologetic about that. Um, that's where I think we're heading. In the interim, premiums are still a tool in the toolbox and premium exists in land to market. We also put a lot of energy into what we call um, whole animal and whole farm utility. And so uh, can we get you more value for your cull cows? Can we get you more value for hides? I don't care who you are. Joel Salatin, Will Harris, Gabe Brown, um, whoever your favorite rock star farmer is, I have yet to meet the one that's getting 100% value on their hides. Um, are they getting 100% value on their drop? Very few. Can we get you more value for that offal, for those bones, for bone broth? Um, we're looking to create a whole animal utility play. And if you look at the suite of brands on our website, um, you'll see that, that, that there's been a lot of intentionality put behind that, that we have players in broth, pet, apparel, and food for that reason. Um, and so, so that's, that's where I think, um, the stepping stone is, I think it's premiums. I think it's whole animal utility. I think it's utilize everything that's coming off the farm, um, under a re regenerative differentiator. Uh, and then in the future, I think it's moving to these ecosystem service payments. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, 
it's too bad. The ideal would be a free market situation, I guess, where just customers and people and companies pay what it takes to encourage farmers. But like you're saying, as, as you scale, I guess, if I'm understanding correctly, at some point, the price, the premium goes so low to where it doesn't really incentivize people to make a change. Uh, at, at no, point. I mean, I think, I think the cost of payment can go up at some point, the, the value of something can go up. But at yeah. some point, that's not a premium anymore. You've hit enough scale, and that's just the cost of, of doing things. So yeah. I want to see the value get closer to real. But but premiums from an economic term and economic sense have a, a temporal aspect to them. They have non-permanence to them okay. um, at the commodity level. At the retail level, mm-hmm. sure, you know, you put a piece of jewelry in, in a blue box and you can sell it for however time is much more because that's something that's been built with that set of consumers forever. You can't apply those same principles to grass-fed beef as a whole, to organic milk as a whole, to, to regenerative products as a whole, because there are other players out there that are selling a similar product with similar attributes and specs. And so as that scale, that drives the price down when we think about it in terms of premiums. If that whole floor needs to come up because there's higher value in this, that's a different equation. And, and that's where a lot of people are going. It's like, can we bundle the product with the ecosystem services story? And and where my mind is at over the last 10 years of this journey and, and, and a lot of conversations, and I have room to grow on this and we evolve our ideas every day and land into market, but I really think they're different asset classes. I think there's, there's a high quality product coming from regenerating lands and that's one asset class. And I think there's healing the planet as, and it comes with a fee, fee for service as a result of good stewardship, that is a different asset class. And I think that's actually stronger and more resilient and more diversified for the grower and will have longer legs long-term than trying to match those two things together in a way that doesn't always fit. Hmm. Interesting. So I guess moving then for the farmer, if they go through this ecological outcome verification program, they have the certification or whatever the, the verification like an organic certification is probably the one that's most we're organic crop farmers. That's kind of a something, I guess I will compare it to and ask how it works then is like, we have this third party independent verifier or certifier for our certification, but we don't market through them. We're marketing through organic Valley, whatever there's, it's probably one of the largest, most well-known organic Valley co-ops or markets for organic products for people who go through the EOV process and get this verification where are they actually marketing the product then and and is that market matured enough to where you can do this at scale and at volume and transition a farm and and get a premium at, at the time for the time being to justify those changes yeah so so um so i do encourage people to go to our website go go to landtomarket.com um you'll see the whole slew of brands that we have there that are formal paying members with us that are saying we want as much supply as we can possibly get. We're, we're, we're changing how we, we sort things. And so that's, that's kind of step one ground zero, but I'll, I'll, I'll go back to the farmer point of view for a minute. So um, the farmers need to connect with an an accredited uh, professional at Savory Institute that can help guide them towards, this could be a hub uh, this could be someone to know in their region. We can we can help connect them if they have questions. They can email on the website uh, at savory.global. But getting an accredited EOV monitor out on their land is step one. Uh, so a baseline is set up. That data is collected. Uh, 
year two, we have a trend. So, so you've got your baseline and the following year we have a trend. Once we have that trend, then we can start to differentiate in the marketplace. And so that's where global quality assurance would say, okay, this is our first instances that you have a trend. That first year is a little bit of great, you know, statistical relevance. We really need three years of data before we just like, okay, this is a trend moving in the right direction. But we we give them grace in that first year. It's like, okay, so now you've you've got a trend established. We're starting to move in the right direction. We want to see keep seeing it go that way. Um, that data gets sent off to like I said, multiple layers of quality assurance, and they get they get issued a report that says, here's where you're at. Your data has been reviewed by quality assurance. That makes them eligible for land to market. So EOV is kind of like if you think of like an Intel inside brand. It's like you have a certain brand of computer that's land to market. And then, then EOV is that Intel inside. That's the, the the protocol that's happening behind the scenes. So you 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 get your report, says your data has been been verified and quality assured. That makes you eligible for land to market. Um, if you're if you're just a, a farmer brand, if you're just a farmer selling live animals, you don't have to do anything else from there. Uh, you can choose to engage with our supply platform that helps uh, us connect you with could be stalkers, finishers. Uh, could be finished brands, um, you know, could be a cold cow play, um, but you don't have to do any more work from that. You can you can advertise your stuff as qualifies for land to market, uh, and we can help find you buyers. Uh, if you're a farmer brand and you're selling direct to consumer, uh, we've got we've got a, an easy way that you can come on as one of our brand members, um, and we'll help you differentiate it with your consumers. Uh, we'll help you get into, you know, retailers and, and restaurants and chefs and things like that. And then if you want, also help connect you to that B2B network, those those other farms or those other um, brands that are sourcing land to market material currently. And so, like I said, that could be as simple as hides. I could tell you, I, you know, hides only make up, uh, you know, 40 pounds of whatever the, you know, 700 pound carcass is that we got uh, hanging out on the rail there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can sell hides all day long. And so even if you want it for nothing else than just to be able to move those hides, it, we're, we're literally pumping the brakes and throttling down on apparel and being like, hey, we're, we're not we're not showing up to those meetings anymore of like, we yeah. want to work with you. It's like, we don't have enough out there. We have to slow down for our existing clients and get them up to speed. Um, so getting it's talk about new value streams, getting farmers paid for their hides. We do that all day long. Um, and so, so more of that can happen. And then if you want to help differentiating the meat, regardless of how you're selling it, sometimes, you know, I've seen it both ways. It tends to be, we're pretty good at selling the middle meats and the high end cuts. Uh, but we end up with mountains of trim and I've seen it the opposite. It's like, oh, we, we end up with mountains of ribeyes and, and we sell all our trim, you know, whatever. I've seen it both ways, but we can help. And so if you're long on items or you have underutilized items, um, we can come in and be a resource on that front. And so we operate as a, as a membership program, brands become members, and then they get access to the suite of services as part of that membership. Okay. So that maybe answers the question that I had, because I was kind of looking on the website here as you were talking about this, trying to find this list of customers that could buy products from a UOV uh, verified producer. And, and I'm not, I'm struggling to find it, but it sounds like you have to become a member to get access to that then maybe, or... You can you can see all our brands there that are members. Um, I may be missing it. Page. Yeah, would, I think it's that middle tab. Um, okay, consumers. consumers. But you scroll down there, you see all the brands. Um, we're just about to do a whole web, website refresh too. Um, okay. But yeah, you can see the brands oh, that are sourcing from us. Um, sure. And then and then behind the scenes, we're actually playing Match.com, facilitating, making those introductions, 
connecting you often with the supply chain partner that's really critical to whatever piece they need. And so, you know, for hides, maybe it's going to your abattoir together, making sure they understand how those hides have to get peeled, salted, frozen, or refrigerated for this brand's needs, and then demonstrating there's a critical mass to get a logistics person to come pick those hides up, uh, whether that's a skin broker or somebody else, and and get that to a tannery that works with the brand. Um, and you, know, you that's guys the are kind facilitating of all that. That that's that we have teams wow. to do that all day long, every day. That's that's, that's what we do. That's so. that's the cool part because it almost it like uh, it almost sounded, kind of gets frustrating when some of these third party cent- certification verification type programs. There's a lot out there of different things where they really have no risk. They're getting paid just to provide the verification. They're not providing any services to the farmer to help them actually market their product. They're just telling them that if you have this, you'll be able to tell your consumers you're verified by this. And and there's that's really the end of it. And I, I love that you are providing service and actually helping farmers connect them with a value with with the market that values what you're uh, offering and through this verification. That that's unique, I would say. Yeah, and and I'll and I'll, and I'll manage expectations to the, to okay. the best of my ability. Um, you know, we we spun out from the Savory Institute, and so Savory Institute is our is our parent company. But mm-hmm. but um, the type of revenue that we were getting and the volume of that needed to come outside of the nonprofit be its own entity. And so we've got a team of of full time seven folks, a really long list of of part time contractors that work with us. Um, currently, that's that's where we're at today. So that's that's in essence what we do every day, but we are spread thin. And to your point of what you just said, there's a lot of folks out there that they they maybe offer this narrow slice of solution, or some would argue maybe it's not a solution at all. It's a little bit of smoke. We're out there doing the opposite of what everybody in business school and everybody, every strategist out there says is we're trying to do a little bit of everything. And I have to defend this all the time to make real change at the paradigm shift level that I think we need to be at. I think I think of us as analogous to Henry Ford. We're, you know, Henry Ford didn't sit there and wait and go, oh, who's going to invent, invent, you know, tires for the automobile and who's going to make the brakes and who's going to make the transmission mm-hmm. to do this right. I got to make every piece of that. Henry Ford had his own yeah. sheep for, for wool stuffing and, and, and uh, upholstery. Uh, he had his own rubber factory in town in Brazil to get that rubber, to make the tires, to get it up in the States. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's how we're marching along with, with that vision that, right now in these early days to really demonstrate to the world we have to be like like henry ford and that's just the challenge that's put upon a true paradigm shifter if we were working in an established industry we'd be crazy to take on the stuff that we're taking on yeah but to make the real shift in how business is done to elevate farmers to the doctors and lawyers level over our lifetimes that that that's how we have to approach it yeah yeah no i and i appreciate that there there needs to i i I really, <laughs> I've been frustrated with some of the other non actually offering much of a value. And so I really appreciate that you guys are offering that full service, but I know you have another, uh, another meeting coming up soon. So I'll, I'll ask you, what have I not asked that you want to mention that is, is worth talking about with this program before we uh, wrap up? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think if I was someone listening to this and and evaluating it and and saying, "Hey, is 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 this for me?" Um, I think the encouragement would be there's there's not everything here is not turnkey. It's not fully baked. Everybody's everybody's figuring out pieces as they go along. The whole thing is iterating 
you know, soup to nuts all along as we're refining and optimizing. Um, but I can just tell you, there's a, there's just something so exciting happening. There is a moment in time that this like, you know, I, I thought for a long time, I'm just going to work on this stuff. This back to like kind of be an Island, like I'm going to work on this stuff and it's going to be my own thing. And, and probably no one else is ever going to care, but I'm still going to dedicate my life to that. Hmm. All of a sudden, everybody cares. And that's a really cool moment in history. So I can't promise you what the outcomes will be. I know it's going to be exciting. Um, I tell you, if this ecosystem service thing materializes, I'd be putting all my data in a silo, just like people put grain in a silo. It's like, I just want to collect as much good data as I can. I wouldn't sell it to any of these outside players right now. I'd just be banking that on the side. Cause right now you can take some of this data and you can, you can, you know, fill out the survey and get your carbon gold stars and go sell, you know, modeled carbon at $17 a ton. And there's a couple of players that pay a higher premium than that. It, it costs about three to $500, depending on what the gas market's doing day to day to emit that ton into the air. I think we've got a lot of price finding in between those two numbers. Um, and I think a broader suite of ecosystem solution that can be demonstrated when the when we're not just talking about planting some trees or or um, avoiding some emissions, when we're talking about real ecosystem health to add biodiversity and water to a soil health and carbon story. I don't know. I think we're entering an era that that farmers really are going to become the heroes. And and uh, I'd be doing everything I could to be capturing that story and taking advantage of it. Uh, to the best of the ability and still and still not holding my breath. It's like, you know, yeah. let's see how this all pans out. But I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing with as much fervor as I am. if I didn't think there's an incredibly bright future uh, on the other side of this this paradigm shift that's developing. And I think you may have touched on some of this, but maybe just as a, a quick wrap up here, then if someone wants to go down to this process, what's the timeline? What's the cost? What's the process of becoming EOV certified or verified? Yeah, the easiest route is go to savory.global. There's a network page. Find your local hub. If there isn't a hub in your region, uh, that's when you reach out directly to the Savory Institute. Uh, but if there is a hub in your region, start the conversation with them. Uh, um, and then they'll say, this is this is what those price packages are that make sense for our area. These are the services we offer. You know, training, consulting, monitoring. These are all the pieces. This is what's minimum, you know, to get into land to market to start your journey. And there's a bunch of doors you can walk through simultaneously, you know, or or separately. Somebody could could take training and learn more about managing holistically and planned grazing. Um, I, again, thinking this data is going to have quite a bit of value in the future. I I'd, I'd capture wherever you are today as value to that because you're only going to optimize your management as time goes on. Um, and so, so um, then, you know, working with them on their monitoring systems as well uh, is a really starting point. But yeah, yeah, it's go to that resource, that resource page, that network page in the, on the savory.global site, see who's in your area, start talking to them and go from there. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was fantastic. I, I appreciate it. I, uh, I hope that, uh, like you said, you don't know where it's going, but it's going to be exciting and I look forward to seeing where it goes. So appreciate cool. all you're doing. Yeah. Love it, Jared. Really appreciate the conversation. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Farrow Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Farrow Cattle Company at farrowcattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.